Latter-day Liberty Podcast, Episode 14. Hello and welcome back to the Latter-day Liberty Podcast with your hosts Matt Kent and Daryl Portsline. We are joined today by Kyle Roberts. If you remember, we had um, uh, Representative Mark Roberts on a couple weeks ago, and uh, during the course of that conversation, he mentioned that his brother had been had taught uh, uh, taught a class on uh, the Constitution uh, down south in the in their neck of the woods. And and Daryl and I have been wanting to do an episode on specifically on the Constitution, so that kind of piqued our interest. So we um, we were able to get Kyle in here, and we are very grateful to have him here. We, so Kyle is the um, president and founder of the Creation Academy and the Saga International, um, his two companies that he's been working with. And uh, we're glad to have him here. We're going to welcome him here. Welcome to the show, Kyle. Hey, guys. Good to be here. Awesome. Well, welcome. Well, hey, we. Um, so just so our listeners kind of know kind of what has happened, we, when I first contacted you, Kyle, I, I asked you, you know, hey, could you uh, give me information about uh, um, the class that you taught on the Constitution. And so just so for our listeners, um, so he sends me this link to a document that is the outline for this. And uh, there is a ton of stuff. <laughs> it, was this a one-day class or was this like over multiple days or what? It's a 20-hour course. Okay. That's what I was wondering. Because when I got digging through this, I'm like, holy God. Yeah, I we mean, taught it over the course of... of so it was a full one day and then a full another day and then a full another day, but they were separated over weeks. Holy cow. Okay. Now what was the, what was the, the intended audience for, for that class? How, how did that get going? It was the intended audience was whoever would listen, <laughs> right? That's unfortunately the way it goes, but it was, it was adults who had questions and then teens, because they're the, the coming generation and we wanted them to understand the role they'll play in defending the Constitution. Yeah, that is great. Yeah, the, I mean, you get into everything, I mean, starting with the Constitution and then the uh, Foundations of Freedom. I'm just looking over the, the section notes here, but like money, debt, and the Federal Reserve, that is fantastic. So that is yet another topic for for another day we'd we'd love to get more into but the rabbit hole yeah exactly <laughs> that, that one for sure is yeah the 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 linchpin in in uh, the government's takeover of our freedoms is right there <laughs> um let's see well so first off when you have uh when when we have talked with uh, other Latter-day Saints, obviously, as Latter-day Saints, we believe the Constitution is, is an inspired document. And uh, w- I did want to kind of ask, get your opinion and ask you about, you know, when, when we hear that phrase, that it's an inspired document, um, what do you, what, I don't know, what comes to your mind? What part of that document do you feel like, what about it is inspired? That's a good question. My understanding of the inspiration of process is that it takes time and effort and discussion. So, for example, in the 1787 convention, if you've read Max Farron's reports or if you've read even the Federalist or if you've read Madison's report on the convention, you see a, a thread and a pattern that runs through that convention. And the pattern is someone, someone will bring up an idea and then they'll fight about it. 
then it might get tabled, they might adjust it, they might modify it, and then they'll come back to it a little bit later. Someone will bring up something new, and then the day will end, and, and for two, three months, they're going through this process. And what, what happens is it'll come back up, and it'll be a little bit different, and then someone will say something, and everybody, and this isn't in all cases, they didn't vote unanimously on everything, but someone will say something and the majority of them would go, hey, yeah, that makes sense. It's different than what we said last time, but that makes sense. It connects. And then they'll move forward. And that's how the Lord works with us. He makes us work through things and then he'll give us little nuggets and he'll give somebody else a little nugget. And for those who don't know, that's the way the 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 corner of the 12 and the first presidency do their meetings and it's the ancient way that it used to be done for those who are familiar with the the, the council of 50 joseph smith established in 1844 the way it goes is the president submits a, a question to the body and everyone is required by the rules of the organization to speak to it so you know, the president of the church would say hey here's what's going on and then they'll go around and then they'll go around, and then they'll go around, and then they'll go around. Everybody says what they say. Everyone's coming at it from a different angle, from their life experience, from their background, from their profession, from what they've just learned, from what the Holy Spirit just said to them right then, whatever it is. And then someone will say something, and the Spirit witnesses it, confirms it, and then the president says, okay, let's move forward, and this is who are responsible for it. And that's the way the convention went, for the most part. So... That it's an inspired document is true. It is not perfect. Right. But it is an inspired document because the Lord is involved in the creation of it and then also in the situations that called it forth. So, oh. it, so let me clarify something else too. The, it wasn't just the convention. You have to read the ratifying debates as well because in those ratifying debates – further clarification and understanding was brought forth by the anti-federalists because they came at it and said, this won't work. And here's all the reasons why. And they've been prescient, almost hundred percent accurate, but that's not because the document didn't work. It's because people didn't work. And so, but those arguments and those discussions are really telling in terms of here's what was being created and being very clear about what was being created. So to me, that's what the inspired document is. It was a process of creation where the Lord used mortal men and their finite understanding and gave them nuggets and brought forth men to the table who had spent their lives studying the necessary information so that it could be brought together in this really collaborative, innovative, connective, inspired way. That's what inspired means to me. Right. Now, kind of along those lines, um, uh, I, I guess I sometimes um, hear people talking in a way that that makes it sound like they're they're almost of the understanding that the Constitution is the end all be all of liberty. You know, if if it's about liberty, then the Constitution, you know, covers that. And um, I maybe take a little bit different stance on on that. And and I was was curious if you know, I think we ref- we as libertarians we kind of we like to get back to the underlying principles as much as we can and and see what principles are at work that can guide our our decisions. Um, what specific principles uh, do you think were at work 
in the creation of the Constitution um, that that really that helped form the Constitution, and maybe that's a lot of where the inspiration uh, came from. And, you know, like you said, it's not a perfect document. There, there, not every word of it is necessarily, uh, you know, perfect. But what are some of the underlying principles that helped guide that document, and that can help guide our future uh, interpretations of it? Interpretation. Okay, so that's a separate discussion. If you want to talk underlying principles, I'll, I'll go there first. Interpretation of it is is different than the underlying principles. So, and and I can clarify that the underlying principles are firstly spelled out in the Declaration, and unfortunately, we had to change pursuit of happiness from property because that's what it originally was. It was life, liberty, property, and in the end, that's what it all surrounded. Everything surrounded the preservation and protection of property. So just to take a concept for you, are you guys familiar with allodial title? I am not. Okay, look it up, but I'll give a brief definition of it here. It's A-L-L-O-D-I-A-L. So in the old feudal times, the only people who owned property were the kings. And anyone else that lived on the property or was present on the property held it or lived on it at the discretion of the king. Everyone else was a serf. And that's why it's called feudalism is because you had these, these lords that were owners of land and everybody else was a servant or a slave. And the lord of that land could impose taxes and impose duties and conscript your children to go to war for them and could take your food from you and could put you in prison and could uh, uh, do things like prima note where, oh, your daughter's of age now where she's mine for the first night. Things like that happened because of property. People didn't own themselves and they didn't own the land they lived on. So when people started leaving that lifestyle and coming over to this new land with the idea to really their idea was we're going to bring in the new world. We're going to bring in the new Jerusalem. We're preparing for Christ's second coming. If you go read those original documents, that's what they were doing. And so coming over here, they originally, they, they first set a very communistic type systems, but over time it adjusted and modified and changed. And then with the, with the war and the establishment of this new order, it was very clear that the type of ownership, the type of property that was had in these new states was allodial in nature. And that meant it was held free and clear. The people who owned their land were sovereigns in every way that the king was. And that's one of the things that made him mad is because these peasants and these colonists were saying, no, 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 you don't own any of this anymore. We own it in every way, shape, and form that you owned your kingdom. We are a lodial people here. And Jefferson wrote about it in his uh, Virginia Declarations, where he said that the land of America is specifically a lodial land. So no one can tell anyone what to do on their land unless it violates the property of another person's land. So that was the... That was the most important factor in establishing the Constitution was the preservation and protection of property. And you see that fight carry out over the antebellum era and through the, the, the slavery question and after the Civil War. The, the question is always property. And everything in the Constitution, every line, every word, everything 
impacts property. Right. So if, and if that is the case, which I, I agree with, um, how did that, you know, that thought uh, along those lines, as far as um, everybody being sovereign, as far as property ownership and that, um, how did that influence the government that they ended up forming? So let me make sure I understand that. Are you asking how property ownership influenced the constitution or how the desire to own property influenced the constitution? Uh, yes and yes, I guess. Okay. <laughs> well, so there is an argument out there that the constitution was framed by the aristocrats, right? By the landed gentry, by the people who owned property and they disenfranchised those who didn't, right? The slavery thing is in the constitution. And they said, look, you don't, if you don't own property, you can't vote. If you don't own property, then you can't do any of these things. So it was, it was, if you go read the debates, it was a very fundamental question in terms of how things were framed. So for example, just representation, the question of establishing representation in the house, because at first it was just one legislature, right? It wasn't bicameral where you had the house and the Senate. At first it was just this body and how do we establish representation? Is it by a number of people? Is it by space? Is it by land? Is it, how do we do this? And they went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and ended up being just by a number of people, not necessarily those who own property. But the question was, well, wait a minute. If those who don't own property can vote, then the rest of us who do are at risk because they can vote themselves benefits out of our property. And we still have that discussion today, right? Those who don't have a stake in the game can vote for things that don't belong to them and legislate themselves benefits. So all the way through the whole discussion, it was about how do we preserve and protect property and how do we make sure that everyone's rights are, are protected as well. And just as far as that goes, let me just define that in, in the way that I understand it. Because okay. a right... Right. That, that word is probably at the crux of all the discussions that go on in whether it's social media, the government, whatever. It's who has a right to what, right? So in, in the most clearest term, a right is the authorization to act. End of story. It is not the action. It is just the authorization. Okay, so man can act. We have the powers of action. We can choose what, where, when, why, how we do stuff, right? We, we can physically and mentally perform the action. But just because we can do it does not mean we're authorized to do it. So a right is the authorization to act. So protecting our rights is a question of, well, where did they come from, right? So if rights come from government, then the authorization for us to act comes from them. And that was the old feudal system. The old feudal system was you have a privilege or an immunity. That's it. If you don't get this grant from me, the king, then you can't do anything. And, and the same goes for us today. There are many things that we are given rights to do from our government. If we don't have the paperwork or the documentation or the licensing or whatever it is, we're not authorized to do stuff. That's a dangerous situation when our authorization to perform actions that ought to be of our own free will and nature have to come from the government. We're in a dangerous situation. So in the founding era, man could do whatever it was that he could do 
within the limitations of balanced constitution set because it's not a perfectly free document. But either way, it still set that boundary of, look, people can do whatever they want. They can be left alone as long as they don't infringe on the rights of others. And that was a very clear statement. So right. our rights, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that, that actually gets us uh, kind of into um – I mean, like you mentioned, you know, within the bounds of the Constitution, because I hear this a lot from from people where it's like, you know, well, that's unconstitutional or, you know, that sort of thing. And what's, I don't know, what what's interesting to me and frustrating at the same time <laughs> is when it, it seems like, you know, when, when I hear people say we need to um, defend our Second Amendment rights and it's like that the Second Amendment doesn't give us that right. Like it, the, it's not the document giving us those rights, but that's how yeah. it, it seems like it gets treated. It's very true. It does get treated that way. And that's, I think, from my understanding and research and study of the history of the Constitution and the history of America, it's because of a lack of understanding of what the document is and what the Bill of Rights is and how it came to be. Uh, the, whole, the, whole, the first eight amendments of the Bill of Rights were the anti-federalists' demands from the federalists to be put in the document. Because they were worried about the necessary and proper clause. They said, look, this is good. This is like a plenary grant of power. They can do whatever they want. The Frederick's like, no, 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 no. No, they can't. There's all these things in place to prevent that from happening. So they said, okay, we will we'll go for this if you put these things in place. So Madison's job at the first session of actual, the actual government when it was in place was to take all the proposed amendments that came from the different states and whittle them down. And then he proposed them back to the states, and they, the, the first eight are the compromise. Look, they're here, they're part of the document, they're in place, and 9 and 10 further authorized it by saying anything that's not here they can't do, and anything that's not authorized they can't do either. It's all left to the states or the people. So the understanding of how it came about will identify that those things were not that the Constitution is granting us to them. It's that... These are inherently ours, but we want it written. We want it in stone that these are things the government cannot, this new system that's centralizing power, that it cannot interfere with. Right. So, and, now, and that gets us back to the, the actual question that I was originally going to pose as well. <laughs> um, but when it gets to the idea, like you said, when you bring up the Tenth Amendment and that, I've heard quite a bit about... Um, uh, well, nullification, and and that's something that I feel like um, I'm, there's the Tenth Amendment sender and all this stuff, you know, the, fantastic stuff going on. But when it comes to nullification, I, I feel like it goes hand in hand as far as like um, who gets to decide what is and is not um, constitutional, you know, what the constitutional constitution actually means as far as our rights go and what it protects and that sort of thing. Could you speak a little bit to that? What, what nullification is maybe, or, you know, and, sure. and whether it's constitutional, what the constitutional basis for that is. Yeah, that's, that's a really important question. Uh, let me, what's the best way to approach this? Um, I guess first off it would start with who, who gets to decide what is and is not constitutional. Right. So, there's a quote from Jefferson. He wrote it in 1820, 1819. This is after, obviously after he was president and very close to when he died. But if you remember Marbury, Marbury v. Madison, where Chief Justice Marshall says that is it emphatically the role of the courts to say what the law is. 
And that's been the history of America. And that was like 10 years after the thing got going. And Jefferson says, it was something, so he says, the chief justice says that there must be some ultimate arbiter somewhere. And he said, true, yeah, there has to be. But he said that the ultimate arbiter is the people. Let them decide who they want to give an authority to by the two different branches or three different branches of government that they have put into power. Um, he says it's basically it's wisdom in the Constitution to have provided that type of a situation where the people were the ones that enshrined it. The people are the ones who are to say whether or not it is or is not constitutional. It's called concurrent review, where if the courts say something and the legislature disagrees with it, then the legislature disagrees with it. If the president disagrees with that, then the president disagrees with that, but it comes back to the states. That's who the people were. If, if, when, when the preamble says, we the people of the United States, what it means is the states. Like, there's no such thing as we the people. That is a, uh, a misnomer. Because we the people is not, it's like society, right? There's no social brain. There's no collective organ. It, we're all individual actors. So we the people is the states separately and individually. And they act through that, that organ. So when something happens on the federal level, the states have that right, have that authority, have that ability to say, we will not apply that here in our state. And there are dozens and dozens of examples of nullification in the very early history of this country up to about the Mexican-American War. After the Civil War, it never happened again. So that was the, that was the role of the states. They could decide whether or not they were going to apply some type of uh, law in their boundaries because they were sovereign in the boundaries of the Constitution. Right. Now, right along with that idea of nullification um, is, uh, I, I put these t together at least, the, the idea, this idea of civil disobedience and, um, you know, when that's appropriate and, and who, who is, is authorized to, to, to do that, uh, when, when are we, when should we or, or, or when, when are we allowed to do that? Um, and, and as Latter-day Saints, um, we, we've actually been counseled um, in certain instances to, to avoid civil disobedience. Um, and I'm curious what your, what your thoughts are on civil disobedience and, and more specifically, is it really civil disobedience if we are simply a, adhering to a higher law, namely the constitution? That's a good question. And to be honest, I'm not sure I entirely understand all the situations of that question. The, the thoughts that come to mind as I've thought about it over the years is the situation of Captain Moroni, where he took it upon himself to defend the rights of the people. And what comes hand in hand with that, though, is the potential threat of death, right? So if you're going to stand up and defend something that you think is being violated, but the force you're going up against is stronger than you, then you, you have to accept that in the defiance of the powers that be, you are risking death. That's, that's what the founding fathers did or the founding generation did, right? They said, we're done and this is a separation and we are 
free to do as we wish with our own future. And the powers that be said, no, you're not. Because they were exercising their rights, right? That right of, of self-determination. And they went to war over it. So the question in my mind is, what battle do I fight? And in what way do I fight the battle? Are there ways to practice um, civil disobedience that is peaceful, that doesn't turn to war? And there are many, there are many that are doing that. The Tenth Amendment Center is an example of one, speaking out and saying this is wrong and this isn't what, the way it should go. But going to the level that the founding generation did where they made actual legal declarations and separated themselves, to me, that is the ultimate, right? That's the ultimate level of saying, no, I do not accept, I do not consent anymore to this system and I'm leaving this system. I don't, I don't know what the ramifications of that are at this time. I mean, we can obviously surmise what they would be. But for me, for my own personal situation, at this juncture, civil disobedience is, is with the pen. It is with the pen and with the voice and with influence. Uh, right. I, I don't think we're at the point yet where we do what our founding generation did. Uh, I think they were moved upon by the spirit to do what they did. And that's where I'm at too is – they who wait upon the Lord to receive instructions will will be blessed and protected of them. Right. So, I'm glad you brought up the that idea of you know be, being inspired to to do that. And um, if you, I mean, to me, I just look at, at the Book of Mormon, and there, there's actually plenty examples, plenty of examples of you know what we might call civil disobedience in the Book of Mormon. There's also plenty of counterexamples where um, it wasn't the right time. For, for that to happen, and it was time for the people to, to humble and to, uh, you know, kind of bear some of those burdens, and, and mm-hmm. the Lord was able to make those burdens light and was right. and was able to give them ways to cope with the oppression that was going on. Um, so so I do think that we need to to be thoughtful and and careful with 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 how we do that. And and I think one, and this is you know just just my opinion, but I think that that. As if we are able to appear uh, appeal to that higher law of the Constitution, um, you, you could really make the argument that that's not that's not really civil disobedience. That's just simply um, uh, refusing to to you know uphold a lesser law that is in direct violation of a higher law. And so, back to that idea of nullification, that can be a great way to to. Uh, you know, maintain those liberties that really are guaranteed to us in the Constitution. Yep, I agree with that. There's, and there's many, many ways to do that. Right. Now, and going back to, I did want to get back just really quickly to the idea when when you started talking about like, um, you know, the courts making the being the final uh, decider as far as what is and is not constitutional. Um, was that? Um, I don't know. Is that something that we, that is all right? Or is that something you feel like, you know, that's, that's a bad thing or a good thing and and why or why not? So I'm going to answer that a little bit in a roundabout way. You go for it. (laughs) I'm not to, not to avoid it, but just to kind of give some, some background, I guess. So those who were at the federal convention, most of them were private lawyers. Okay, they, they had their own practices and they practiced common law. And so they were in front of, they were in court all the time 
hearing and, and defending and doing all those things in, in a common law setting. Uh, common law is different than maritime law. Common law is different than equity law. So common law is just the law of the people. It's the law of, of the, old, the old English common law. Okay. So most of the contracts that are present in common law are a trust type contract, uh, if you will. So those who, those who drafted the constitution, specifically John Dickinson, because he was on the style committee and when they were just cleaning up the, the wording specifically with article one, section eight, where the, the powers are listed, he was the one who drafted that and, and wrote it. And there's many things in there that are right from the Virginia constitution and other things, but but it was it was all drafted with very specific rules of construction that governed the way contracts were interpreted at that time. And the most prevalent of them was the trust, that type of contract. So in a trust, there are five major elements. You have the trustor or the settler. In our situation, we can call it the creator. You have the trustee, right, which is the agent or the trustor. And the trustee can also be the beneficiary. But uh, so then the next one is the beneficiary. They're, they're the party that's protected or benefits from the trust, right? And then you have some sort of, of consideration that's put into it. And the last element is that it's deliberately and intentionally put in place and accepted by all the necessary parties. Okay, so the Constitution was drafted in just that way. Okay, so the preamble is the statement of fact that says this is the purpose of what this document ought to do, right? We, the people of the United States, in order to form a perfect union, to establish justice, provide for common defense, promote the general welfare, um, do ordain and establish, oh, and uh, to ourselves and our posterity, right? Do ordain and establish this constitution. So when I ask the question, who, who created the constitution well, in my classes? It's, I, I get a lot of blank faces. And the answer to that is it's the states, the people through the states. They are the creators of this, this trust example. Okay? And then <clears throat> the trustees of the Constitution are the officers of the trust. They are the representatives and they are the, uh, the president and uh, the, uh, the judicial branch. Uh, now, the bureaucracy are not trustees, and that's important to understand uh, just because of the way civilizations rise and fall. Beneficiaries are obviously us, valid consideration. There really wasn't anything put into it, but it was intentionally created and signed and drafted and agreed to. Okay, So because of that, there are rules that govern the way trustees can act when they're in the position of a trustee. The most important one is that they cannot act in any way that is to their own benefit. Okay, so an example for that is my, my dad's actually a, a, a real estate lawyer, and we were talking about this one day a few years ago, and he was in court with a guy because he was the power of attorney for somebody's trust, and they were in court and they were doing something, and the, the, the attorney started making decisions and doing things and they're moving along and, and my dad got up and called him on it because he was violating his trust. He did not have the authority, the right to act in that way. Okay. And so, um, that is the exact same way that the constitution was written. 
Okay, the agent is able to do everything that is absolutely necessary to carry out their powers, but they can't do anything that benefits them or benefits a special group. And this is actually written into the Constitution. Okay, so um, if you take Article 1, Section 3, I uh, can't remember. Hang on, I got my Constitution right here. Okay, Clause 7. Judgment in cases, so this is this is the judicial branch, right? Article three. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than the removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. Article four. No religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. And then there's some um, from the Federalist Papers. Um, I'm pulling up some of my notes here. Uh, this is James Iredell. He actually was the most prolific writer and defender of the Constitution in, in that time. Federalist Papers were very, very not well known. Anyway, he said the Constitution is a great power of attorney under which no power can be exercised but what is expressly given. And then even in the Federalist Papers, uh, the federal and state governments are, in fact, but different agents and trustees of the people, instituted with different powers and designated for different purposes. So, if we take the 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 legislator, sorry, the judicial branch, they hold their office under good behavior, right? The term "good behavior" was a legal term used at the time, and it meant, insofar as they uphold their office of trust. Okay, so as soon as the judges start doing things that violate the understanding of the Constitution, specifically in the words that were meant, then, so uh, here's, here's this quote here I just found again. This is James Madison, okay? He says, I entirely concur in the propriety of resorting to the sense in which the Constitution was accepted and ratified by the nation. In that sense alone, it is the legitimate constitution. And that be not the guide, and if that be not the guide in expounding it, there can be no security for a consistent and stable more than for a faithful exercise of its powers. If the meaning of the text be sought in the changeable meaning of the words composing it, it is evident that the shape and attributes of the government must partake of the changes to which the words and phrases of all living languages are constantly subject. Okay, so that's what's happened. The courts over time have changed the meaning of the words. They don't, they don't mean what they meant at the time. And when you study any contract law, you cannot interpret the words of the contract except under the time period and the phrases of the dictionaries of the era. So that the courts have the power to decide alone what the Constitution is, is a very dangerous situation. Uh, you know, if, if 192 branches of government are in one hand, that's the definition of tyranny, right? So if the courts can hear cases and legislate and interpret the Constitution, then they're the tyrannical branch of the government. So should the courts be able to be the final arbiter on the Constitution, on, on constitutionality? Absolutely not. And it was never set up to be that way. They were to issue, you know, they hear a case and they say, this is what the Constitution means in our judgment. If the states disagree with it, then that they don't apply it in their state. Yeah, now, and we've obviously seen you know, many cases of, of overreach by the courts, and, and that has uh, 
you know, ha- had some pretty detrimental effects to to the the amount of liberty we're we're able to to exercise right. um, legally. Um, and legally. To, <laughs> yeah. To 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 wrap things up. Oh, um, we're serfs. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it does feel that way sometimes. Um, to wrap things up, and th- this is, um, we're getting a little close to our the time to wrap up here. This is a little bit of a selfish question for me, but this is this is something that um, I zeroed in on when I was looking over your your class uh, outline there, and and I w- it just really intrigued me, and I, I was hoping you could take you know, just just a minute really quickly to to explain this phrase that you have in there that we get the government that we deserve. And um, what what do you think we can do to connect the dots between what is wrong with our government and what we've done or what we haven't done to, to make it that way? Oh, a minute. That's hard. Um, <laughs> it's not an so, easy interview here. Uh, how do I readers digest that? <laughs> so maybe maybe this will answer it. I hope it does. If you remember in the notes, there are four foundations of freedom. The first foundation is virtuous and moral people. And virtue in the way it was understood then was something that does what it was created to do. Aristotle's example was if I have a knife and it doesn't cut anything, then it doesn't have virtue. So as individuals, if we are a virtuous and moral people, then we do what we were created to do. And that goes back to the concept of rights. We have never been authorized by God to not defend our rights. We've never been authorized by God to not defend the constitution. So virtuous and moral people, obviously the morality side of it is, is intact. Second foundation is widespread education. And that was Jefferson's whole aim is in, in order for us to keep this Republic, we've got to educate people. Because it's not enough just to be free, right? When people are free, they just get left. They want to be left alone. Leave me alone. I don't want anybody's involvement. I just want to herd my sheep, do my thing, run my business, and not – I don't want to hurt anybody. I just want to do my thing. But if they don't understand the law, understand the principles of the government under which they live or the principles under which they were created, then obviously they run the risk of losing what they've been granted, the third foundation is virtuous and moral leaders. Those leaders have to come from the people, right? So if people aren't able to select good leaders, then those who get put in the position of trust, are easy, it is easy for them to violate that trust because the people don't know whether or not they're really violating it. And then the last one, just in terms of, of government, is is the auxiliary precautions, right? The checks and balances, different things that we talked about, but more specifically than just the checks and balances, but the, the, the vertical separation of power, not the horizontal separation, the vertical separation of power where the people are sovereign inherently with their allodial property on their land and no one can tell them what to do. So there's no property taxes that will, if you don't pay, will take your home away from you because it pays for the education system, right? None of that exists. Because the people have decided we are we are free. We are kings on our own land. Those those are the auxiliary precautions. And they put their, their representatives in place in their local governments and their state governments, and then it goes up to that national national federal level. So to me, that that is 
what's happened and also what needs to happen, right? We don't have virtuous and moral people. We don't have widespread education. We don't have virtuous and moral leaders. So there's no precautions in place for us. And those things slowly and slowly get taken away. So that's a simplistic answer, but it is the answer. And so the first place to start is always with yourself. Like Jesus said, Gandhi said it too, right? Take the beam out of your own eye before you start looking at other people. So you start educating yourself. You start getting involved. I don't know that you need to get involved in the system, but you need to get educated and you need to start speaking out. You start doing stuff. Be doers of the word, not just hearers only. So nice. One minute answer. Sorry. Yeah, no, that is beautiful. That was fantastic, and and kind of a cutting indictment for the rest of, for all of us, right? <laughs> if this is if this if we are that upset about our government, we can take a look at ourselves and figure figure out kind of where we went wrong, right? Alrighty, well, that's going to do us uh, for today. We, in closing, before we did wrap up, I did want to give you just a real quick minute to to plug your your website. Uh, it's um, the the one that I wanted, I was actually very interested in was the Creation Academy. If you could just give us a real quick rundown of what that is. Creation Academy is a genius and entrepreneurial incubator for teens. Genius means the inherent natural abilities and talent that exist within us. And entrepreneurial is not business. It is ideation. It is ideas. It is innovation. It is collaboration so that things can be built. Institutions can be created that can fight the battles that are coming to us. And so why I chose teens is because one, they're the next generation. But for those who are familiar with the book, The Fourth Turning, the turning we are going through right now, the crisis we are wading through and the new founding will be by those who are between the age of uh, 30 and 15 right now and those who are between the age 10 years of people who aren't born yet and um, those who are up to the age of 15. That's, that's the group of people who are going to lay the new founding and who are going to fight the battles of, of this coming crisis. And so I want to take teens and I want to give them strong minds and strong hearts, not give them, but provide an environment so that they can develop strong minds and strong hearts and uh, provide them with opportunities to educate themselves in the ability to innovate so they can take old concepts, old ideas, and apply them in new ways. Because that's what we're going to need in the coming 20 years. So that's that's what I do. I mentor them and I train them. We have classes. We have workshops. We have uh, regular semester classes upcoming this fall too. So that's that's the sum up. Well, that is great. And that that, is, that can be found at creationacademy.org. And we will have the link to that on the show notes page uh, for this episode. That will, you know, for everybody that... Um, I'm sure that you already know this, but it's a it's at ldlpodcast.com forward slash 14 will be the, the show notes page for this episode. Be sure to go and check that out and check out uh, everything that, that Kyle's been up to. But we really do appreciate, Kyle, you, we appreciate you coming on and, and explaining all this stuff for us. It's uh, a lot to wade through in, in a short amount of time, but we really do appreciate you trying to do that for us. Yeah, you're welcome. Did my best. All right. All righty. Well, that'll do us for today, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.